From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And I sure would have liked to have spent some time this week trying to smuggle a sledgehammer into the state capitol just to see what would happen. But uh, as uh, truth be told, it turned out to be a pretty busy week as usual here at uh, Idaho Education News. Uh, the, The news just keeps on rolling. We've got a lot to get to this week. Let's start with... Let's start with news. Uh, Tuesday was an election day, a little bit of an under-the-radar school election, uh, but bonds, levies, and recalls on the ballot in a handful of Idaho communities. Kevin, uh, you stayed up late Tuesday and got up early Wednesday to track the results. What results struck you as interesting, and were there any trends you noticed? Well, there was definitely a trend, and I don't know what to make of it. Uh, We had... Well, we had seven bond issues across the state, and six of them failed. The only bond issue to clear that two-thirds supermajority and pass was in Sugar Salem. Uh, Everything else failed, and we're talking about some really large bond issues. Lakeland in North Idaho is looking at a bond issue of more than $70 million. That's a a biggie. Uh, Bonneville uh, was looking at another bond issue. They've had bond issues in the past. They've got so much growth going on in that district. They were looking at $42.7 million. Neither of those bond issues came even close to the two-thirds uh, supermajority. They, they both failed in a big way. You look at some of the other results around the state, uh, some of the numbers were closer. Some of the proposals came closer to that two-thirds threshold. Uh, some proposals in Oneida County, which is looking to replace an old school. Um, Shoshone, which has uh, been looking to uh, run a bond issue for some time. Uh, those failed. They came close to the two-thirds threshold. Yeah. There's probably some more reporting I want to do on this, and because I, I don't want to you know, oversimplify what's going on sure. here or jump to conclusions, because you know, bond issues are a very local issue. I mean, all politics is local, and I think bond issues are about as local a, a decision as, as you can get. Um, so I'm not really sure what conclusions to draw about results from Lakeland to Bonneville to Shoshone to Filer. A couple of things, though, that did jump out that I will want to maybe take a closer look at. Four of these six bond issues that failed are what I would call repeat bond issues. Yeah. Uh, very similar proposals to what voters had seen in the past. And sometimes it does take multiple efforts to, to get a bond issue passed. And, and sometimes... Sometimes no means no. <laughs> some, and sometimes there's ballot fatigue. And sometimes voters do, uh, you know, start to, you know, weary of the idea of, of a bond issue and, and weary of the ask that they're getting from, from the local school boards. Um, I think that may be the case in Bonneville. Our Devin yeah, Bodkin yeah. has covered uh, Bonneville and Idaho Falls school districts and... And the growth in Bonneville, which is real, and it's something that they have to contend with, uh, but their tax base is high, their property values uh, somewhat lower, and so while maybe the, bond issue fatigue in that community for sure. Right, so while this was a different proposal, uh, a, a different list of projects that the, the district was trying to do, it did come on the heels of other bond issues that have passed, and schools that have, out, that have been built and have opened yeah. as a result of uh, revenue from bond issues. But I think you're right. I think maybe you know there's a, a sense of fatigue. I know there was some organized opposition to that bond issue, and you don't see that very often. You know, often with these uh, bond issues and levies, if there is opposition, it's it's really kind of behind the scenes. It's kind of you know 
it's not organized, it's maybe more of a whisper campaign. But in this case, you really did have a group out campaigning against the bond issue. So, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of see where it goes from here with these districts. Do, do some of them come back with different proposals? Do they scale them back? Do they uh, put the proposals on hold for the time being? How do they manage the growth in the interim? And how do they manage the growth in the interim? Because like with a district like Bonneville, we'll be really interested to see those enrollment numbers when they come in. That's a district that has been dealing with uh, with growth for several years. I can't imagine it's slowing down in that part of eastern Idaho. So, yeah, a lot unresolved from those uh, from those bond issues, and maybe even more left unresolved yeah. in the Middleton School District. Yeah, you tracked the results. Was it three trustee recalls three that were before voters on Tuesday? Go through the results, but. Results paint the picture of a community that continues to be divided, but what did you find out and and, and what's the result at the end of the day? At the end of the day, the three trustees are still going to be on the job. Alicia McConkie, Tim Winkle, and Marianne Blackwell will all keep their seats on the Middleton School Board, but just barely. Uh, In McConkie's case, a majority of voters on Tuesday voted to remove her from office, but that's only half of the story in a recall election. Two things have to happen for an elected official to be recalled. First of all, you have to have a majority of voters say, we want this this official out. But what you also have to have happen is the number of voters who say yes to the recall election, that number has to exceed the number of people who voted for the candidate in the first place. So you go back to McConkie's election, and I think it was 2017, uh, I believe she had 120 votes uh, to, to get on the school board, Five vote difference. 115 yep. people voted yep. in favor of the recall Tuesday night. So that narrow a margin in that case. And in the other recalls, very narrow margins. Uh, both of the recalls were voted down, but only by a handful of votes. So, yeah, it doesn't take a, you know, you don't have to be Jim Weatherby here to look at those numbers <laughs> and say, this is a community divided. Uh, there is no strong mandate here either way you look at it, because you go back to one of the controversies, and there have been a bunch in Middleton, but one of the controversies in Middleton was over uh, Ben Merrill, the high school principal. The the board decided not to extend uh, Merrill's contract. McConkie and Winkle did not want to extend the contract. Blackwell did support Merrill and wanted to keep him. Well, all three were were subject to the recall. All three kept their jobs narrowly. So you look at those numbers, you, you can, pretty clearly see that this is a community divided about uh, the direction that this uh, school board is going, just as the district is getting a new superintendent. Yeah, and, and, and I appreciate the segue there. I'm going to be sitting down with uh, Dr. Sharon Reberry, the new superintendent of the Middleton School District, here in a few days. And it's probably, I'm going to take a couple of days off after Labor Day, so it's probably about a week or so out. Uh, but looking to have an in-depth discussion with her about her experience, who she is. She's someone that both you and I uh, had met uh, a few mm-hmm. years ago uh, through when Idaho Education News was a part of Boise State University. But I want to talk to her about her education experience, why she sought the job in Middleton. I also want to have what I hope is a good productive conversation about her goals for the district, how she hopes to unite the community and, and move forward. I don't think it's really fair necessarily to hold her responsible or ask her to um, how she would have handled things over the last two years that predated her tenure. But I do think the issue of uniting the community and building trust 
moving forward, focusing on student achievement. I think those are all things that she will have to contend with as a first-year superintendent. And so that'll be an interesting discussion, probably about a week or so out uh, from that feature dropping. We'll keep you posted. We'll talk a little bit more about it on Extra Credit once the piece does uh, publish, and we'll let you know when and where to find uh, it. Yeah, and I think, you know, Rebury faces some, some myriad issues in, in Middleton. There's growth, too. There's um, growth. And that leads to uh, a, a demand on buildings. We talked before about districts that have had to run bond issues, repeat bond issues to try to tackle growth. Middleton is one of those districts. They have run several bond issues to no avail to try to, uh, to uh, upgrade their facilities and to handle growth. That's an issue that, that is still lingering. I mean, it didn't go away. Right. Um, you, you have that. You obviously have the, the division in the community, uh, you know, some divisions within that school board. Uh, Josh Middleton, the former superintendent, uh, didn't mince any words on his way out the door. He talked about you know this dysfunctional um, you know school board that he was leaving behind. This is you know this political dysfunction. Talking about that's, the social media backlash. That that's what Rubery gets to inherit. And while you know she wasn't there for it, this is what she walks into. Yeah, you know, uh, there's you know the residual uh, you know from you know that the Halloween costume. Sure. Uh, saga from last fall. I mean, this is a district that has made a, a lot of headlines and not, uh, not necessarily good ones. That's what she walks into. So, you know, I'm looking forward to that profile because there, there's a lot to chew on there. Yeah, stay tuned. We'll, uh, we'll let you know exactly when it publishes, where to find it, and then kind of we'll recap uh, the high points from our conversation on a future edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. Uh, so stay tuned, and as always, watch the homepage. As you know, that's www.idahoednews.org. If you need to get caught up on the results from Tuesday's bond and recall uh, election results, that's there at the homepage. You'll find um, Sharon Reberry's profile there next week or whenever it comes out, and then the rest of our top stories this week as well. So let's shift gears and talk about a profile that is out, that, yep. has, that has hit the streets, uh, one that you published on Wednesday. Bill Gilbert is a name that, you know, we've, we've mentioned his name on the podcast, but I don't think if you walk down the streets of downtown Boise and you mentioned Bill Gilbert's name, you'd get a lot of uh, recognition. You'd get, you know, who is this guy and why is he so important right now? Yeah, so he's heading up. He was appointed by Governor Brad Little to serve as the co-chair for the K-12 Education Task Force. That's the uh, Our Kids Idaho's Future Task Force that you and I have been covering uh, weekly since May. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to explore with this profile. I sat down with Bill for more than an hour and a half. I've gone to most, not all, but most of the task force meetings. He's gone to all of them. And subcommittee meetings, and he's gone to all of them. But I wanted to explore, you know, who is this person? Someone who doesn't have a lot of name recognition in education communities for sure. What you know, And so here's this businessman without a lot of education experience helping right. shape education policy, and that's very literally what the stakes are. I think the task force is really uh, being used by Governor Little to develop uh, the education agenda that he will put forth, certainly during the next three plus years uh, during his first term. I think that's kind of the stated goal of the task force. Um, but yeah, so I tried to explore who he is. He is actually an Idaho native, Bora High graduate, University of Idaho graduate, heavily involved in the finance sector. He helped with some friends of his, he helped start a, what appears to be a very large and very successful financial advising firm called Caprock. It's based in Boise, but they have five or six other offices across the West. 
and um, basically do financial advising and planning for families with large and complicated balance sheets mm-hmm. is what okay. is what Bill told me. Um, and he does have a lot of corporate board experience. Mm-hmm. He's been a prominent alum from the University of Idaho. He's helped with a presidential search years ago at University of Idaho, one of several that yeah, that probably. university has been through in the last 12 to 15 years. So there's a U of I connection between uh, Gilbert and Governor Little. Yep. And uh, they've actually, Bill said that he's known Governor Little since Bill was a kid. Since he was 16, 17 years old, Bill's family was in the cattle business. Obviously, Brad Little, outside of his public service, a cattleman and a rancher, and so they crossed paths there. Um, once Bill got out of college and established himself in the finance world, one of Governor Little's sons, David, was an intern for Bill Gilbert. And then, crucially, uh, they got a little bit closer even since then. Weeks before the contentious 2018 Republican primary, I think there were something like six names on the ballot. And three big names. Three big names. Little. Uh, Little, yeah, for sure was one of them. Uh, Bill Gilbert stepped up and gave a financial contribution that we found just weeks before the Republican primary. And then just after Brad Little won election in November 2018, he asked Bill to be on the transition team to help uh, fill out his staff and, and make the transition from lieutenant governor to governor. But then the big appointment came in May when someone, when Bill, who was kind of unknown in a lot of education circles, was appointed to head up this task force. And I talked to Debbie Critchfield about that. She's the other co-chair of the task force, also the State Board of Education president. She said she'd never met Bill Gilbert before the day that they were introduced as co-chairs, and she knew uh, that it would be a hard position. And I've talked to Debbie about her own role ramping up uh, with her education policy knowledge on the State Board of Education, but she knew it would be a steep learning curve. We've already talked about how the governor has a quick turnaround time. Uh, but she said that she would defend Bill every day of the week because of the work he's put in. And it is, you alluded to, he's gone to every meeting, every task force meeting, every subcommittee meeting. Sometimes that's two full days uh, per week, almost every week. And so he's really had to put his summer on hold and his corporate life on hold. But kind of the work that he put in and the way he ramped up is kind of legendary among task force members at this point. And that's one of the things that we explored uh, in the article. And and he talks about in a position like that, he knew you can't fake it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Surrounded by fellow superintendents and school board members, uh, the teacher of the year is on the task force. And he said, that's a group where if I don't know my stuff, I can't fake it. I can't get away with that. So the article kind of explores who he is, how he knows the governor, how he ramped up to help lead the task force. And we're kind of at an important time for the task force right now. They're starting to develop the framework for some recommendations. We've talked about the new accountability system focused on literacy. We've talked about building out the career ladder to increase pay for veteran teachers. Talked about potentially all-day kindergarten. Talked about potentially building up the state savings reserve accounts to help weather a recession that more and more people think could be on the horizon within the next three years. And so it was just a chance to sort of introduce him, talk about his impression of the task force, and sort of how he ramped up um, to prepare himself for this role and then to really dig in. And I thought that was really interesting in the profile because there's been criticism of the makeup of the task force, that there's only one sitting teacher uh, teacher of the Year, uh, Mark Badia from, from American Falls, that there's only the one sitting teacher on the task force. And there's been 
some eyebrows raised and, and some criticism raised about having a businessman co-chairing uh, a task force on education. It was interesting to read how Gilbert approached that as somebody coming in as a bit of an outsider in the education world, uh, realizing you know he really needed to to up his game and really study this stuff if he was going to uh, chair a task force and, and you know you know take advice and take uh, testimony and, and, and take feedback from the education community. Yeah, he really, he's involved with the Idaho Business for Education group. He really leaned to fellow CEOs and business leaders in that group. Rod Grammer, Bob Locken, who was involved in mm -hmm. former yeah. Governor Otter's, both the Higher Ed Task Force and the 2013 K-12 Task Force. But I talked with Greg Wilson, who is Governor Little's education advisor, his chief education liaison, and he said, Governor Little did not take this appointment lightly. It's one of his top priorities particularly uh, early literacy. And so the education task force is a top priority. And one thing he said was the governor wanted an outsider. He understood that Bill didn't have the bona fides with education policy experience, but he wanted someone who has corporate board experience who could really put the spurs to the education experts that populate the rest of the committee and drive them to action. And so it sounds like a very deliberate um, a conscious effort to bring an outsider into the, yeah. the dialogue. And certainly the trust and the relationship and the decades-long friendship between Gilbert and Little and their respective families was a huge part of that. Uh, the governor wanted someone he could trust. And, sure. and, I, and that comes across very pointedly because you see that Bill Gilbert is so close with the governor that he feels comfortable speaking for him and saying, no, 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 this is important to the governor. You're going down the wrong path here. Uh, and so I think that level of trust, in addition to the fact that he knows how to run a meeting and spur people to action, were the reasons that uh, the governor appointed him. Spoke to a couple other people on the task force, spoke to, to Greg Wilson. If you want to find out a little bit more about who Bill Gilbert is, uh, if you need to get caught up from the task force, if you weren't really focused on that this summer, totally understandable if you want to find out where they're at. They are heading to kind of a crucial junction. Um, there's a meeting coming up in September, September 13th, and then a big uh, big date on October 1st when I think we right. really will see the recommendations come together. So kind of a crucial juncture for the task force, and I wanted to kind of get out and take a step back. A lot of people have been asking okay, I know a lot of other people on the task force. I don't know Bill Gilbert that well. Who is he? That was kind of the point of this article. No, and I think it does a really nice job of, of helping people understand, you know, where did he come from? Where, where does he hope to take this task force? And, and kind of the connection between Gilbert and Little. There's a lot of good stuff there. So, so check that story out at idahoatnews.org. Yeah. All right, and wanted to go to our other top story this week. Kevin, you've kind of taking this opportunity to sort of step back and look at the controversy surrounding the Idaho Charter Commission and then the path forward. Uh, but you sat down with Alan Reed, uh, the chair, and sort of talked about this whirlwind summer. It started with that open meeting violation that dates back to April or May. Yeah, right. Um, but it's not just about the violation. You're sort of talking about where do things stand and trust issues. But what did you learn from sitting down with Alan Reed and, and kind of... Where does the Charter Commission find itself now? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of an interesting story to put together because, you know, as an open government 
advocate, uh, as somebody who's very passionate about transparency in government, I wanted to do a story that was less about the open meeting violation. Because as we talked about before we turned on the microphone, you can't find anybody who's followed this issue who would suggest that the Charter Commission didn't break the law in April. That's not in dispute at all. Not not even among the Charter Commission. Right. I mean, even before, I mean, the the Charter Commission has fessed up. They have said, yeah, we we violated the state law. We agree with the Attorney General's report. Uh, They've gone through the training with the Deputy Attorney General, uh, Brian Kane. I was there for that training. I was there for, you know, their, their public mea culpa. That issue, that story feels like it's been written. That feels done and dusted. But what I really wanted to look at was, where do we go from here? Where does this Charter Commission go from here? Because the controversy has not gone away. If anything, the controversy just continues, and I think it's focused more upon other issues with the Charter Commission and with Charter Commission staff. The critics are are still uh, raising concerns about the commission, about the staff. They still feel that uh, the commission... Uh, is playing favorites, that they, they single out some schools for criticism and, and others uh, don't get as much <laughs> scrutiny. Uh, they are still feeling like, you know, this is a commission that wants to close charter schools again. And even they, though the track record is that they the track have not done is that. very limited. I mean, 15 years this commission has been in, in place, they've closed two charter schools. So not a long track record of closing schools, but that is still the concern out there, the, the concern that this is a the commission and its staff are, are biased, they're using sloppy research, on and on. And you have critics saying they'd like to see a house cleaning, they'd like to see some new blood on the commission, they'd like to see some legislation that kind of reigns in the staff. So I wanted to look at all of that and try to figure out where this goes from here. And it wasn't uh, just talking to Alan Reed and, and getting his perspective sure. on the summer, but uh, I tried to talk to folks on, on both sides of the debate because we've alluded to this before. There is definitely a split within the charter community about this charter commission. You have some schools and some parents who want a wholesale change. You have others that um, are, are defending the commission, uh, you know, defending it to the hilt. Yeah, and, and then I think you know, when I talked to Terry Ryan from Bloom and, and the, the charter school network, he said, you know, there are some in the middle, and he kind of feels like he's in the middle too here, you know, who feel like, you know, maybe something should happen as a result of that uh, of that open meeting violation. Maybe there should be some some sanction of somebody somehow. But how do you do that? So because everyone still survived, the charter commission is still intact at this point in terms of going back to who populated it during the April open meeting violation. Mm-hmm. Who's there today? Right. Right. There's and, no and, change in the makeup. Right. And and yeah. You know, and that's part of what I wanted to take a look at. This is an interesting body because there are seven volunteer members. They're appointed. Three of them are yep. gubernatorial appointees. Two are appointed by uh, Brent Hill, the uh, Senate President Pro Tem. Two are appointed by uh, Scott Bedke, the Speaker of the House. So I wanted to t- get perspectives from all three of them. And I don't get a sense from any of the three that they want an overhaul. Um, you know, when I talked to, to Senator Hill this week, he said... Um, you know, I'm willing to look at things you know, as, as things go, as these commissioners come up for, for renewal and they come up for uh, confirmation in the Senate. Three of them will, will come up in 2020. But he said, look, they're lay people. I think they're doing the best they can. I don't want an overhaul. When I talked to, uh, to Speaker Bedke last week, uh, he said, you know, 
most charter schools don't seem to be this upset with the commission. I think that this is a pro-charter, you know, pro-charter group. He cited that one of his appointees is uh, Julie Van Orden, the former chair of the House Education Committee. Who, a well-known school choice advocate. Yeah, who, who, was, who was pretty uh, you know, pretty consistent on school choice issues when she was in the legislature. And you know, his take on it was, you know, It'd be nice if we had somebody else who could uh, authorize charter schools here the during, 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 the, during, the, during the past and to, to get through this rough patch, but nobody seems to want to do the job. And that, to me, that's the bottom line here. And this is why this is so, such an important story. De facto, the charter school commission has become the only game in town for a lot of charter schools around the state. About three-fourths of the charter schools in Idaho answer to the commission. They were authorized by the commission. That means that their, their charter comes up for renewal every five years before the commission. We're talking about up to 46 schools now with, with four new commission charter schools opening this fall. More than 16,000 students, that was last year, and now we have four new schools added on. So a lot of students under the, the charter commission's bailiwick. Why do charter schools have to often go to this commission? Well. Under the law, universities can authorize a charter school. No university has ever done this, and I talked to a bunch of folks about why, and, and there are a lot of reasons, uh, a lot of theories as to why, but universities have never had an interest in doing this. They've never pursued it. Um, school districts can still authorize charter schools. Uh, we saw one just this year, the, the new charter school in Island Park is being authorized by the Fremont County School District, but that is becoming more and more of the exception. Uh, some school districts really don't want to authorize charter schools. They're really not interested in it. They, you know, again, for whatever reason. Sure. Um, so most charter advocates have to go to the commission to get a charter. So what this, what this commission does and how this commission, you know, moves forward is really important. It's, you know, it's really pivotal to the, to the charter, you know, to the future of charters in the state. And when I went back to the governor's office to try to get comment for this story, and I had spoken briefly to, to Governor Little firsthand a few weeks ago, what I heard again from the governor's office is that uh, Little supports the commission, um, acknowledging that you know there was a misstep here with the, this open meeting issue, but supporting the, the commission and its role of trying to oversee charter schools, of trying to provide some oversight, uh, some, you know, some control over student performance issues, financial performance issues. So ultimately, you don't have the governor pushing for a big mm -hmm. change. You don't have legislative leaders agitating for, for a big change. I'm sure we will hear about this issue more uh, in the months to come. I'm sure we'll hear about it more at the State House. But I really just kind of wanted to get a barometer of where we stand at this point. So there's a lot in this story. It's a, it's a fairly lengthy story. I'll warn you up front, uh, a lot of words there. Um, but I wanted to get a lot of different perspectives about where this commission is, is going and where they stand politically after this you know, summer of controversy. So uh, you know, check out the story at idohatenews.org and, and get a sense of what I found uh, putting this thing together. For sure. It's, it's a timely story. Um, I enjoy the fact that you step back and look at the bigger picture, but it absolutely does matter. Uh, we are in the middle of a charter school expansion and have been for years in the state of Idaho as you mentioned the four new this schools year, 2000 new charter seats I mean it's a it's it's a growing sector there's no question but about school that. choice is alive and well in Idaho it's a popular 
position to support, especially within the House Education Committee, where there are more charter schools coming down the pipe. But I also get the sense that there are some folks who do want to have these conversations about accountability and oversight for charter schools. And some folks might think that the only mistake with the open meeting violation was the discussion, not the discussion itself, not the substance of it, but the fact that it happened behind closed doors, not out in the open. Uh, and we've seen that continuously as we look at student achievement in Idaho. Some of the highest performing schools in the state of Idaho are charter schools. On the other hand, some of the very lowest performing schools year after year in the state of Idaho are charter schools as well, uh, sometimes online virtual charter schools in particular. And I think that gets at some of the tension that I'm picking up within the charter community. As I said, you've got some charter schools and charter school advocates who are defending this commission. And, and, and let's be fair here and let's be frank here that some of the schools that are defending the commission are well-established charter schools. Uh, there tend to be some fairly high-performing charter yep. schools like, yep. like North Star and Eagle, Compass and Meridian, the Coeur d'Alene Charter Academy in, in North Idaho. Uh, these are you know, some of your higher flyers within the charter community, and they've been around for a while. And even though some of these schools have said, yeah, we had problems at the outset, we had some issues we had to get through, and the commission helped us through, these are schools that are, are further along in their, in their lifespan than some of the other charter schools. And, and you alluded to it, some of the charter schools that uh, are, are critical of this commission are the ones that have struggled. Are, are ones that have struggled and say that they are struggling partly because of demographics. Um, Idaho Virtual Academy is the largest charter in the state. It's an online charter school. Uh, its demographics are different than a lot of charter schools, different than a lot of traditional schools. They, they do have a a number, a significant number of at-risk students, students who have come into the school for a variety of reasons, whether it's a health issue, a bullying issue, um, you, know, you, you name it. Uh, it. So in some degree, the virtual schools become kind of a, an alternative school, even mm -hmm. if that isn't the title that's attached to them. Some of the other charter schools that have been in the middle of this fight with the commission are schools like Heritage Academy in Jerome, which has a, a fairly uh, you know, high uh, concentration of at-risk students in, in terms of demographics. They were referenced during the closed-door meeting right, specifically. Right. So there is a split within the charter community, and some of it is, you know, and I think you know, there's some demographics at play here. I don't think there's any way to get around that fact. Yeah. I appreciate you watching it. Charters are here. It's an extend, expanding movement along with the overall choice movement in Idaho. And it's something that we've committed to watching, to, to watching the expansion of charter schools, to watching the accountability and oversight of charter schools. We talked about the most recent legislative session when the legislature passed laws to what some people would term relax the standards for charter school administrators, created a new certificate uh, that they could obtain that would have different People often say lesser standards than a traditional K-12 public school administrator would need to have. Specifically, someone can come in and head up a charter school with no education experience whatsoever if they, other, if they meet other criteria. And so we've committed to watching this growing area um, of our school sector. And charter schools absolutely are public schools in the state of Idaho, even though it is part of the choice movement. Charter schools uh, legally are public schools in the state right. of Idaho. And so that's important for this discussion as well. And it's important to know that we will continue to watch these developments with the commission, uh, with charter schools themselves, and the overall choice movement. It's something that we'll be watching uh, 
uh, during the years ahead, particularly during the legislative sessions. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Uh, like I said, home, like you said, homepage, IdahoEdNews.org is the best spot to get caught up on that and all of our other stories that we weren't able to get to this week. I know everybody's looking forward to a big Labor Day weekend, and I hope you guys have a lot of fun out there. We will be back next week with another new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. Maybe we'll be able to tell you a little bit more about the Middleton School District and its new leader. We'll also be getting closer and closer uh, to the task force coming together with some of its recommendations. State Board was meeting this week out in eastern Idaho. A lot going on, and every day that passes is another day closer to the 2020 legislative session, which I know Kevin is absolutely looking forward to covering. Get your sledgehammers ready, you know. Well, hey, thanks so much. We had a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, and we enjoy breaking down this ever-complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.